Listen to me. You know what happens if they get in now? They'll kill us all. They've gone too far to back down now. You understand that? We're dead if they get in. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast's Straw Dogs Retrospective Series. If they want to kill us, they have to kill us. If they get in this house, we're dead. Hosted by Arnie. It's real good to have you back. Stuart. He's all right. I like him. And Jacob. Do you fancy him? He's sweet, I think. But be warned, this episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and strong language. Fuck, man! You're right about that. Like Who's that? next? We hope you enjoy the show. Come on, come on, let's go. The police will be here soon. Today we're discussing Straw Dogs, starring James Marsden, Kate Bosworth, Alexander Skarsgård, Dominic Purcell, and James Woods, directed by Rob Lurie. This is the now playing co-host who always counts as jump for open binary, still Arnie. And Stuart. And this is the co-host who's too good for God, Jacob. Yeah, I don't know why there's a line about binary in this film. It doesn't make any sense. Stuart, you hung out in Hollywood. Do screenwriters often discuss binary numbers? <laughs> I never discussed binary numbers, no. <laughs> but we do discuss Straw Dogs, and most people agree it is a movie worth seeing. All three of us agreed on that. Yeah. I never heard anything positive. You would think that I would want to line up and see the 40th anniversary reboot. I'm not opposed to it. I'm going to put it out there that... I think it is possible to make a good movie twice, but never heard anything good, disappeared from theaters really fast, and I just kind of forgot it ever happened. Yeah, I remember seeing the trailers for this, and I guess I'm just more cynical than you, Stuart. Yes, a remake can impress me. They could be as good or even better than the original, especially if it's going to be based on something that is deemed by many a classic. Like, that's an upward battle for me. You got to prove yourself. You got to really bring it. So, yeah, there's no way I was going to see this. And then I never heard a thing about it. Like, no one talked about it. It just disappeared. Forgettable is certainly the word I would use for it. As with so many remakes of the late aughts and early teens. I mean, we've remade a ton of films and sometimes you'll list one to me. I'll be like, oh yeah, they rebooted that. Or I could bring some up like The Fog and people would be like, oh shit, they did make a new Fog. Yeah, they're just sort of, they come and then they evaporate. It doesn't hurt the original. The good news is it never leaves a mark. You never think of the original as being diminished. You just don't remember them doing this. And it should be said, they remade Straw Dogs three years after Straw Dogs. I found this out looking at IMDb. I was like, oh shit, do we need to add this? Unofficially, didn't pay for the rights to the book, but supposedly the Turkish film Eagle's Nest or Eagle's House is a 1974 redo of Straw Dogs. And I did, I spot checked it. I didn't watch the whole film, but I kind of like, it's on YouTube and like... So it's a foreign film? Yes. Interestingly enough, they transpose it to Cyprus, which is a country at war with itself because half the population is Greek and half the population is Turkish. And they bring that into the equation. It's about a Turkish man that brings a European woman back to his hometown to meet his mother before she gets married and converts to being a Muslim. 
and the Greeks don't like that, and a cat gets killed, a village simpleton hangs out at their house, there's a bear trap, a lot of familiar things. The only difference is, it's not Dustin Hoffman running around, it's the mother-in-law that's got like an axe, <laughs> takes an axe <laughs> to a guy's face. That sounds delightful. <laughs> it's kind of, you know what, it's not good, but there was something about the fact that it was suddenly about like a persecuted Muslim angle that made it interesting and the low budget Turkish quality like I might go to YouTube to find this <laughs> it's worth spot checking and watching you know I would watch every two minutes and then I'd skip ahead 10 minutes and watch the next two <laughs> minutes and I would just say it opened my eyes again to the possibility that you can take what was done in 1971 and basically redo it again in a different context and come up with something interesting Maybe it's not great, maybe it's not even good, but if it's interesting, good enough for me. And I think that's kind of what I was saying at the end of the last Straw Dogs review. Okay, you're going to remake this. You're going to have to find an interesting context to put it in, like that 1971 one. I think that makes that film as the context and the time it's taking place in and the commentary that's going on. But I wanted to give this film, this remake, this 2011 one that no one ever talks about or remembers, I wanted to give it a fair shake. So I did something different in my viewings this time. I watched this before I revisited the 1971 Straw Dogs. Oh. Because I hadn't seen that one in like 15 years. It, it wasn't fresh in my mind right right like we talked about that with the girl in the dragon tattoo if i saw that fincher one first would i have been into it a little bit more even though i recommended right. it both so i wanted to give this one the cleanest viewing that i could give it which is faint memories of the original one so i actually watched this before i watched the original nice yeah so it's fresh eyes and if it works it works so there's no bias or less bias going on at least that's awesome I'm glad you did that. I actually was excited for this in 2011 because I'd been considering rewatching the old Straw Dogs for a few years. I'd just, I had vague memories of it. It was something we were doing now playing regularly. And I believe Stuart would bring that movie up on the air, off the air. And it just got in my head. I'm like, I need to rewatch that movie. And then they did a remake, and I'm looking at the cast, and I was really into the early seasons of True Blood. We got Alexander Skarsgård in this thing. We got Cyclops James Marsden in here. And then Drake from Blade 3, Dominic <laughs> Purcell. Yeah, these are some really great stars. The comic book stars you love to see again and again. I don't even think these are friends of Arnie. I think these are like... <laughs> People like you know and don't you shrug. Alexander Skarsgård, I've liked in everything. I even liked him in The Stand, even though it wasn't a good version of The Stand and he was underutilized. You saw that Tarzan shit? I have not seen his Tarzan. <laughs> okay, I didn't think so. <laughs> if I have, I didn't realize that was him. <laughs> yeah, it was recently. They had Margot Robbie and him did a Tarzan a couple years ago. Oh my God, I did see that. It was awful. Okay, I've not liked him in everything. <laughs> Wait, Margot Robbie was in a Tarzan movie too? Yeah. What year is this? Uh, like five years ago, maybe? Wow. I know. Like, again, you don't even have to be in Straw Dogs to be forgettable. Like, any remake can just, like, disappear <laughs> into the ether. But I thought he was a great love-to-hate villain in True Blood. And James Marsden, yeah, you can pop him in the Friends of Arnie category. Really? You know, I've seen him in so much. He's a comforting presence. Okay, all right, well, if that's what it takes. I wasn't excited about this cast, and I wasn't excited about this creative talent behind it. I think the biggest hiccup for me is writer-director Rod Lurie. 
Who? Yeah, I looked this guy up, hadn't seen anything that he's done, don't know who he is. Apparently, he was a movie critic. Are we getting a little M. Night here? Movie critic turned filmmaker? Yeah, I don't know that he's M. Night crazy, but he seemed to want to be the next Aaron Sorkin. All of his projects have a political bent. He did one where the show Commander-in-Chief, it's about a female president. I actually liked that. I watched a few episodes of it. It didn't last long. Joan Allen did, I think, a similar concept at the movies called The Contender. He made one about deterrence and nuclear deterrence. And again, he, if, if it's about the White House and it's not West Wing, you might see Rod Lurie's name on it. Okay, I could see a political bent in this film, definitely. But does he know what subtlety is? Like, are those films just obvious what his politics are? I haven't watched any of them. I say I'm not excited about him. It's not to say that I'm against him. I, there's nothing pro or con about this other than he didn't have any awards on his shelf no one was calling him a great visionary so what's he gonna do with this i did listen to the commentary on top of watching this and he claims dustin hoffman is the reason he was convinced to remake it that he was talking to dustin hoffman and hoffman was like you know you don't have to swear allegiance to peck and paul keep in mind this guy tried to get peck and paul fired yeah <laughs> he's like you know just do your own thing it's basically a western concept just adapt it to how you see fit it could work again it's been 40 years this is how hoffman's gonna drum up interest in his so he gets his residuals and all that <laughs> it's all plot perhaps perhaps there's a self-serving quality of this but i think it's true anything that's 40 years old is fair game there's a certain segment of the movie going audience that will not go back to straw dogs the original no matter how good it is they will not go and watch a movie from 1971 so bring it back put it in a context that they can understand yes this director did say that he had a political agenda that there were things that he wanted to fix and he used that word about the peck and paul version he didn't think he could make it better but he thought he could correct some of the misogynistic over-exaggerated elements that sort of marred the original in his estimation. That's weird, because I feel like that misogyny is part of what Straw Dogs is. For better or for worse, that is part of the commentary going on. So I don't know if cleaning that up is fixing it. <laughs> well, what Lurie said specifically, just to get to the point, what he didn't like about what Pekka Ma's version advocated was that being a man makes you inherently violent, he saw that he wanted to shape this new one so that you are a product of your environment. And that was the correct way to position all of the aggression. And he also felt like, well, his words was Bosworth wouldn't be subservient. His Amy wouldn't be subservient, which I don't think is the right word. I don't think of the original Amy being subservient per se. Well, it was go get me my drink, clean this house. I mean, he was treating her like a servant. Hmm. I think they're trying to say that she would not be enjoying the rape and would not be reduced to the complications that have made that performance and that original movie so controversial. So strip out all the complicated humanity. Again, this is why I'm so cynical when it comes to remakes. It sounds like you're doing the exact opposite of what makes Straw Dogs great. You're trying to sanitize it. No, I definitely think that you can have a movie that embraces masculinity that doesn't have to be toxic masculinity. Yeah, except, again, I feel like that's what Straw Dogs was about. And, and it, I'm open to it. If you could show me another way, I'm open for it. But to be reacting against the violence like Peckinpah was endorsing that, like that was a triumphant moment, feels like you might have misunderstood that film. 
I do think it's a great idea not to go back to London. I was relieved. I had no idea what they were going to do for the conflict. But the fact that they've decided to tell it as an American story and more of a cultural divide rather than an American abroad, I think really helps. The Deep South, you know, maybe... If you're going to say the problem is the environment, maybe that's a slam against the South. Maybe you're heading into other controversies, but why not try it out? Yeah, if England wasn't up for that original Straw Dogs, did anyone in the South see this film in America? Because I feel like this depiction's way worse. No one saw this movie in general. The <laughs> global box office is $12 million on a $25 million budget. Ow! Wow. So this thing tanked. And it tanked hard, and the critics weren't kind. And Lurie even kind of knew it. He was a fan of the original. He knew he was setting himself up to failure. But just as someone that wanted to both give tribute to the original, but also say there are things here that I'm uncomfortable with that I would like to change, it was an experiment he was willing to take, and it was an experiment that blew up in his face. And so, yes, the 40th anniversary of Straw Dogs came and went. And if anybody saw Straw Dogs, they saw the 1971 version. Well, at least he had something to say. I'll give him that. You know, a lot of times people come in with nothing to say with the reboot. I mean, it's pretty much the same script, word for word, even when it doesn't make sense. I I question how much he has to say. Interestingly enough about that, I agree. I'll just go ahead and skip to what I originally wrote as my review before I listened to the commentary track is, boy, it would be really nice if he took some risk with this thing. He did. He originally wrote a Straw Dogs version that had different characters that were not based on either the novel or the movie, and it really went in different directions, and his producer said, you know, we're really trying to remake Straw Dogs, so why don't you make it Straw Dogs? And when your producer tells you that, they're telling you if you want the money, (laughs) you need to do what was done before. So it wasn't Lurie's choice. Yeah, they had already photographed James Marsden with broken glasses to mimic that Dustin Hoffman poster. Right. I don't think that Lurie's impulse was, I'm going to wax work this, I'm going to Gus Van Zandt this, I'm going to redo this with just a Bayou backdrop. I think he had a different notion on where to take the ideas of violence and how your environment shapes you small town versus outsider but the original version good or bad was rejected with the idea that he would instead follow more closely what had been done in the movie again i want to stress they could have readapted that book but escape lunatic uh, (laughs) yeah it's a slasher movie they decided to do peck and paw well i guess i won't be so hard on Lurie then it sounded like he had some ideas but the studio just wouldn't let him do it Yeah, that's the way it came off to me, and so let's see what they wound up with. Arnie, is there a need to give another plot summary, or should we just go with last week? Mississippi instead of the UK. There you go. Yeah, like I have done with a couple of remakes recently, I did a copy and paste job here. There's a couple different names, including actors. (laughs) Different actors, that's the difference here. 40 years later, different actors. (laughs) Well, there's a couple other differences. Screenwriter David Sumner, played by James Marsden, and a screenwriter this time. Screenwriter David Sumner is working on a new script. To focus on his work, David and his much younger actress wife Amy, played by Kate Bosworth, retreat to the small rural Mississippi town where she grew up. They stay in the abandoned house once owned by Amy's father. Alone in the house, Amy and David get into several heated arguments. David isn't getting along much better with the countryside locals who look down on the erudite, urbanite screenwriter. They're also a bit jealous of his hot wife. 
especially jealous is Charlie Venner, Amy's high school boyfriend, played by Alexander Skarsgård. It doesn't help that Charlie is at their house every day. David hired Charlie to fix the garage roof, and Charlie's doing the job with his rough-and-tumble friends Norman, Bick, and Chris. See, totally different. It's Norman, Bick, and Chris this time. Yeah, there's no rat catcher who wears a fake nose in this one. Yeah, there wasn't Chris last time, but he's not catching rats. <laughs> We're going to shoot a deer instead of a goose. Very important differences. The more David tries to show he's one of the boys, like buying the group a round of drinks at the local pub, the more he's mocked. Someone even kills David's cat and hangs it in his bedroom closet. In fact, it seems the only person in town more hated than David is Jeremy Niles. See, they changed his name. He's now Jeremy, a mentally challenged townie with a history of violence towards women, played by Dominic Purcell. One afternoon, Charlie and his crew invite David hunting. With David in the wilderness, Charlie goes back to David's house and fucks Amy. Norman then comes in and rapes Amy. When David gets home, Amy doesn't tell him of the sexual assaults, but insists David fire the crew so they no longer come around. A few days later, while driving home and arguing with Amy, a distracted David hits Jeremy Niles with their car. David takes the mentally challenged man back to their house to wait for medical help. The doctors don't come. Instead comes Charlie and his crew, along with Coach Tom Hedden, Charlie's high school football coach who became the local drunk, played by James Woods. David didn't know Niles had just accidentally killed Tom's young flirtatious daughter, Janice. Now Tom and the others have come to kill Niles. David refuses to open the door. When Sheriff John Burke arrives, he's shot and killed by Tom. Having murdered one man, the crew begin a siege on David's house. With various household implements, David incapacitates or kills all of the attackers as credits roll. Yes, I hear a lot of similarities, but they hit you up right at the top. At the very beginning of this movie, the biggest change is the first shot. That is Swampland. We are not in the moors of the UK. We are staying local. We are going down to the bayou, Mississippi, Blackwater, Mississippi. Beware the black water. Yeah, not to be confused with uh, George Bush's favorite private security <laughs> firm that he used in the Iraq war. I think there was some political ideas on that. Again, Lori is someone very topically motivated and politically motivated. Oh, Blackwater was a Bush thing. I was just thinking that man thing movie. <laughs> uh, well, I'm sure Bush would love for you to think that yeah. that was your first reference point. <laughs> I think that is now playing in a nutshell. Blackwater. Arnie says, man, thanks. Stuart goes with Bush. <laughs> Perfect representation of the show. I agree. I agree. We're both become parodies of ourselves. <laughs> Besides, I think now it was dark water and man, thing. <laughs> but yes. What does it mean that we're in a rural South that is prideful? And yes, we'll be teaching aggressive on the football field behaviors that will turn into rape and murder in the context of this movie. Is that a good direction to go? I think it's interesting. I think it's potentially offensive for people that are living in the South. I think it works better in 2021 than it did in 2011. The South is rising again. I might agree with that. Yeah, I don't think it helps get rid of that image of coastal elitist Hollywood looking down on their noses at the South. Like, this is cartoonish. And that was the thing Laurie said he most didn't want. No one-dimensionality. I want these people to be multi-dimensional. What did he tell James Wood to do then? Like, <laughs> It sounded like no one could direct James Woods, but we'll get there. Yeah, James Woods is his own type of person here. And I don't think James Woods is controllable either on a set or on Twitter. 
I will just say this. Rod Lurie said that he used the most pulled in takes. What you're seeing is the most restrained <laughs> Woods version. He was screaming and whining throughout the entire shoot. Wow. But yeah, the fact that David and Amy are driving in with their Jaguar and I probably actually have kind of this image of the South in my mind, but I wouldn't put it on screen. Like I would look for more nuance. Again, this feels so broad to me when you're saying this is a political writer. Well, does he do political cartoons? Because that's what this feels like. Well, Aaron Sorkin can certainly get up on his soapbox. But this is like taking shots at people. It's just, it's part of America. Like, you're not looking at why people in the South are this way. It feels like you're just making fun of them, calling them rubes. Well, the question to ask is, are we to like this David? Because we discussed that last time. Who was the real villain? Was Dustin Hoffman actually the bad guy in that scenario ultimately? Here, I think it's a different kind of dweeb. He is, I think Lurie used the word country club. He's uh, annoying in a hipster way. But he is not intellectually wrapped up in himself. He seems to have a better marriage. He seems to be a little bit more involved with his wife and what's happening here. But the problem is, is that he flashes his money around and he just doesn't seem to understand the struggles that these people are going to after their football careers fade. I wish that they had portrayed him as more wealthy. I mean, I know that there are some really well-paid screenwriters, but by and large, I don't think they're getting a cut of the back end. So I feel he's middle class, upper middle class. He has a $100,000 car. That's pretty extreme. Yeah. If you can spend $100,000 on a car, you are in an entirely different mentality than anyone in Blackwater. If you could get a loan for a $100,000 car. <laughs> I would call them mortgage to the hilt. But I mean, this character is successful, and I have to imagine, Lurie didn't say so, but I have to imagine he's basing it on himself, right? I mean, this is my story. Yeah, you look at the movie he's writing on, it's a war film, Stalingrad. Stuart, I gotta ask you, I love the history about Stalingrad, an amazing story for World War II that Americans don't ever want to hear about because it's about the communists actually changing the tide of the war, but has there ever been a great Stalingrad film? Rod Lurie actually recommended one, Come and See. I haven't seen it, but uh, it was made in the 50s. I'm writing it down. <laughs> yeah, he was a big fan of that. I don't know if it's specifically about Stalingrad, but it is about the war from the Russian perspective, and he claimed it was the best World War II movie ever made. And then just recently, they made some IMAX 3D thing, Stalingrad, which it sounds like the movie David is writing. <laughs> it sounds like a misguided Hollywood attempt to try and downplay the Soviet aspects. Oh, geez. While just making it an action blockbuster. But yes, obviously the fact that he is so enamored with this standoff is symbolic, right? Because he's going to be in his own Stalingrad. And the thing that was important to Rod Lurie, he said, was... Yes, not only was Stalingrad the final stand that turned the tide for World War II and maybe began the defeat of Hitler, but it was about common people. Women and children really won that battle. It wasn't just the soldiers. It was common people with the fortitude to batten down the hatches and just live through that years-long assault. And yet, when I'm watching this film, I'm like, okay, why is he working on Stalingrad? That's obviously, like, some thesis of this film. Like, you just don't pull that subject matter out of anywhere. Like, it's got to mean something. And, like, they reduce it in this film. They just say, oh, yeah, it's about survival. 
Oh, oh, okay, so your home invasion movie, it's just about survival. That's what you're telling me. All this rich history they never get into in the film. They don't really get into it, but Lori, what he hoped you would get is what won that war was the women and the children. What's going to win this Straw Dogs is our new Amy. And I don't know about you guys, but Kate Bosworth is giving me a real Jessica Simpson vibe. <laughs> yes. The dumb, pretty blonde that doesn't know chicken of the sea is a fish, you know, like they want her to seem stupid. And yet the way that Kate plays it and the political agenda of Rod Lurie wanting to correct the misogyny means we can never really look at her as the bimbo she's kind of written as. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how to take her. I felt this way also about the last one. But here, I get more of an impression that she's connected to this area. In the last movie, the only thing we got from Amy was that she used to date Charlie and that they're living in her father's house. It's a lot of lip service, but not a lot of connection. Here, she knows a lot of the people in town. They discuss how she's lost her southern accent, how she buried that, thus giving her a little bit more characterization of how she's trying to cut her ties and doesn't want to be associated with what people think of Southerners. Yeah, she's become a coastal elitist, too. She starred in some TV show, we'll be told. Right. Yeah. And and the, what's interesting about this is David puts the words in her mouth. He is the screenwriter for her show. And it's a real tension. It goes kind of unexplored. But the idea was he never gave her enough to do. And maybe that is a comment on the original Straw Dogs and Susan George. I don't know. But it feels like this is the movie that's going to give her equal footing if you didn't feel like the last movie had enough of Amy. They stop into a bar. It's almost like a collision. We see on one side of the screen this jaguar coming. We we make a close-up extreme on the hood ornament. And then on the other side, coming in the other direction, are these antlers. That deer we saw killed in the beginning has been strapped onto the grill of this pickup truck. And now those hicks, we didn't know who they were, now are blowing into the same bar as these L.A. screenwriter and his actress muse. And, yeah, we'll see how it plays out. We'll spend a lot of time at that bar. We'll learn that apparently poor people, they use only money. Again, I don't think that's true. Like, everyone has credit cards and debit cards these days. Yeah, I remember the day that grocery stores took credit cards, and that was the mid-90s. Yes. By 2011, and admittedly, this movie was shot in 2009. I don't care. They had credit cards in Blackwater, Mississippi. Yeah, this bar particularly, it looks very slicked up. It's not in any way a hole in the wall. They would have a credit card. I'd agree. I mean, I remember when Jay Leno was making jokes about McDonald's starting to take credit cards. But in 2009, there were still some places that wouldn't take them. I still remember having to carry cash when traveling for certain places. So I'll go with it, especially since credit card companies take like 3 to 5% of whatever you charge and maybe the company... Sure, if they would have had a little sign, I've seen those. Hey, if you use a credit card, we're going to charge you 5% more. But my problem is this movie just from the beginning is yelling, poor, 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 rich, 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 poor, poor, poor versus rich, 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 rural, urban, rural, urban. Like, I need some ambiguity from that original. I don't think it's that bad, but I hear what you're saying. It doesn't feel calibrated correctly. When I see these quote unquote hicks, they look like they just came off of a Abercrombie ad. And so like they just... I know rural poor. My family is from there. I every now and then go back and this ain't it. <laughs> These people are doing pretty well by comparison when I think about those relatives. 
Yeah, Jacob, you say rich, 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 poor, poor, poor. I think the poor people use credit cards more than the rich people actually do. Yes. Yeah. That was the trap. Mm -hmm. Switched that in the 70s. Suddenly you could get a credit card if you had bad credit. Yeah, so I'm not seeing the divide here. And yeah, the fact that everybody's looking at him sideways because he wants to put this on a credit card is a little bit stereotypical. But, you know, much like you were saying last time that you don't ever want to say a woman's asking for it, but you think sometimes the woman does start to enjoy the sex with the ex after saying no. There are Southern people who are really into football and hunting and drinking. Oh, oh, Arnie, in Texas, you could buy season tickets to the high school football games. Forget about professional football. High school football, you get season passes. Yeah, I think stereotypes exist for a reason in that, yes, some of this culturalness that we're seeing is true. It's founded in truth. Stereotypes exist for a reason, you know. Stereotypes are often different than biases. When you look at cultural profiling and things, the problem is hashtag not all anything. But these type of people exist, and Hollywood elitists exist. So putting them together does seem like a recipe for conflict. And in fact, again, in the past 10 years, that appears to be all I've seen in this country is coastal elitist versus the silent or at least muffled majority. I don't know how silent they are. They do a lot of yelling. They won't put a mask on and shut up. They want to <laughs> shoot that spittle everywhere. But yeah, again, I don't think this conflict is bad. It's maybe a little clumsy in its execution. It's broad is my problem. It's broad, sure, but it's fine. If suddenly the idea is that this is the jock quarterback that now doesn't feel like he has anything, his coach that used to lead him to glory is now James Woods drunk at the bar, like Tom was in the original, busting up glasses and screaming, you're not going to cut me off, and angry that his daughter is flirting with the simpleton they do make one change i mean they make a few changes but one of the big changes that i notice is the law enforcement character here is african-american you know black in the south but he's the one in charge it feels like you know again you could say there's some subtext but i thought that was going to boil over a whole lot more it kind of does i mean they also later on will intentionally kill him instead of accidentally kill him and i have to think there's a little bit of the racism involved in that choice yeah no i saw that i was surprised it wasn't as broad as everything has been at this opening scene i was surprised it wasn't more broad with that well not only is he black but he's also the only other celebrity blackwater has ever produced his claim to fame is he went and fought in iraq and so he is quote unquote a war hero the fact that he's now the sheriff he's using that celebrity to run the town and so i think there's like all hero worship, there is some idolization and there's some resentment and it can come out in different ways at different points. It seems like in the beginning, the other guys on the football team seem to kind of like him. He's hanging out. They treat him as one of their own. But yes, later, maybe because of racial difference, maybe because they don't respect the law, they will end his life. That's a more interesting nuance than whatever Major Scott was in the original. I would say that that's a fine addition to this story. But when they get to the country house there, we still have Amy erasing things off of 
David's blackboard. This time she's changing the year of the movie from 43 to 44. Which he never catches, right? Dustin Hoffman caught it when Amy did that. But James Marston, I guess he's got to put on those Cyclops glasses. I don't think he ever catches it. Charlie's going to catch it. Alexander Skarsgård catches it later. Yeah, for some reason. He knows about it. Yeah. I think it's showing hashtag not all Southerners. Guess what? Charlie knows some things. He's educated. No. No, Charlie's always talking about how they're just dumb Southerner. Like, everyone here feels like they're pretty comfortable with their dumb Southerness. This came up when the first meeting, when Charlie is hanging out at their booth. Amy is introducing her husband as the smart man who is writing about Stalingrad in 1943, and the husband corrects her then. So he didn't know that. Oh, okay. It's a callback to that. Yes. He was just saying, you shamed your wife for not being as smart as you, and I'm going to just bring that up when I come into your house. Everything about this guy is saying, I am insecure, (laughs) and I used to be the cool guy that was enough for her, but now I'm not. But I will argue, and I think you guys hopefully will agree, Amy and David don't seem to be conflicted the way that Dustin Hoffman and Susan George were in the original. I felt like that was a marriage in trouble and they tried to save it by going to England. Here, I legitimately think that they're doing pretty good and they're only here because her dad died and the place could use some fixing up after a hurricane. Yeah, I totally agree. That was one of my surprises because I watched this one first, technically, even though we reviewed the 71 last week. I did watch this one before. And so, yeah, going into the original Straw Dogs, I'm like, oh, that relationship really was different. Because here, yeah, I get that they feel very much in love where there's a lot of tension in that original one. Yeah, tension comes later. Yeah, there's tension here, too, but it is a lot less, to the point that when she does things like erase that chalkboard, in the first one, it felt like she was trying to get attention or just passively sniping back at her husband. And here, I'm like, I don't understand why she did that. It's playful. She's just getting back at him for correcting her. And David's going to see, like, a picture of her as a cheerleader with Charlie when he was a football player, and, like, he just kind of laughs it off. It's not something that really nags at him. He's very secure in his manliness and his relationship with his wife. I'll put it in a positive way. Yeah. I don't feel like tension is not creeping into the story the way that it was originally. And really, the problem begins when this crew arrives and there's just culture clash, right? You like that kind of music. You want to blast your Zydeco. I want to play Beethoven. I want to sleep in. You guys are intentionally waking me up. Kind of stuff you would expect in a broad comedy. Yeah, they're going to belittle him over the coils on his refrigerator not getting the beer cold enough. Yeah, it feels like The Neighbors, if you've seen that movie with Seth Rogen, you know, where they're just having stupid arguments. But there it's, I hate to say old versus young, but young adult versus middle adult. So here, the argument about will you come to work an hour later? I'm actually siding with the workers because you don't want to be working on a roof at fucking noon or one. I don't do roofs and I understand it's going to be hotter than balls up there. There's a reason roofers start at five or six in the morning and knock off around 11 or 12. And so they don't die of heat stroke. Yeah, I have an uncle who's an electrician. I worked with him for one summer. He's an electrician out in Arizona. We started at three in the morning and we're done by noon. Yeah, I mean, David's going to get mad and say they're leaving early every day. But I'm guessing it looks like summer in Mississippi, maybe fall because of the football games. But it still looks very hot down there. And I do not fault these guys one bit for starting early. And if he wants them to start later, then he should... Be a little bit flexible on that three-week deadline. 
You're making a point to be funny, but you, of course, understand Charlie is intentionally trying to get at David. He is resentful that David wound up with his girl, and he doesn't like the way his life ended up. And so he's intentionally... All these guys are really lax. They come in and take beer out of the fridge. There's no sense that they're going to complete this roof in the three weeks that they promised. Yeah, I will say I felt this was going to be much more of a typical home invasion thriller because it's a little bit more broad to me or a lot more, but it just feels like the tension is being ramped up a lot quicker. Like with every conversation that Charlie and David are going to have, it just feels like, okay, next scene, they're going to start punching each other. It really feels like it wants to move faster, but it's still going to go about the same pace. Yeah, I'm enjoying that it is moving a little bit faster, but I also enjoy a slight, what I'm viewing as a difference in tone in that I don't think... And maybe you guys took it differently, but I don't think everything that this crew is doing is being done to annoy him. When the one guy just wanders in casually to take some beers from the fridge, I think, you know, he knows Amy. He's known her for a long time. I think he just feels comfortable. And when working on a friend's house, he feels like he can go in and take a beer. And that's just their cultural norm. I don't think he's doing it to razz David. Now, I do know Charlie and the music becomes a literal volume contest at one point. And so that's obviously being done for a reason. But a lot of the stuff that's irking David is stuff that just... It's not how he's used to it being done. I guess I'm a coastal elitist then, because I don't want people just walking into my house. I don't care if they're fixing my garage. I do see them as not respecting him, saying, yeah, we could walk all over this elitist, this intellectual. Like, we'll just walk into his house, make fun of his fridge. We could do all that because we're tougher than him. Make fun of it. He offered to fix it. Yeah, but it was to slight him, to go, oh, you can't even fix these coils. Like, that's the easiest thing to do, he's basically implying. And this beer's not cold enough. Again, why are you drinking my beer? I mean, there is... Yes, you're right. They're hoping that he's going to be good-natured and a pushover. Is what they're counting on. That, okay, because we know Amy, we know that you can't be the hard-ass boss. And we're going to kind of enjoy that. But come on, you bought a $100,000 car, you come out, you got to drive into town because you don't get reception at your house, and all those guys are underneath the hood checking it out. Yeah, they just pop the hood and start looking at his car. That's crazy to me. That wouldn't trigger something in you about, like, mine, not you. Don't touch. If they know about cars and they just want to look under the hood and see what I've got under the hood, I'm not going to care so much. Someone starts messing with your Iron Man car, you're not going to like it. Yeah. If they're handling your your Marvel statues and saying, I read a comic book about this character once, and not treating it with the respect that you thought they were going to. Okay, if they started touching my statues, we'd have issues. (laughs) I think you need to think of this guy's car in that way. He doesn't want to see them get so familiar that they are treating his stuff like theirs. And that's really the problem. But he is trying to be understanding, and we do get... An explanation for the name in this one. They actually will spell out a new reason why these people are straw dogs. David is reading the local paper, lamenting about the fact that they put football on the front page and they don't talk about the war or economic collapse or anything that's really going on outside of this small rural world. They're all straw dogs. He references a Chinese ritual I've never heard of, but it kind of sounds like what you were talking about, Jacob, last week. Yeah, people offer up these straw dogs that have great importance, but once they're offered up, they just get discarded. They don't mean anything. 
Right. These men have no point anymore. At one point, they were heroes because they served a point on the football field. And then when they aged out of that, they are nothing. And so he has a level of sympathy for them, but he is irritated. And he sees that he's being taken advantage of. He can feel that. A level of pity, but also a level of condescension. Like, these people are worthless now. I mean, their usefulness is over. They're straw dogs. Throw them away. Their best days are behind them. Right. He does believe that about them. And maybe they believe it about themselves. And I think that's a really interesting way to go. I wish it would have been maybe more of a drama, not be straw dogs and explore that. Like, yeah, you you had your glory very early on in life, and now you've got to spend the rest of your years while I'm still a rising star. I'm going to write this great Stalingrad movie. I almost feel like the interesting stuff here isn't what would have been interesting with that 1971 straw dogs. Yeah, a dark Friday night lights is a new way again it's never how i thought of straw dogs it's a new way to go here but so much of this is repeat we see amy jogging past them and getting leered at and she will i guess most of it's on the editing room floor but she will flash her boobs at them when she gets mad at david i felt like the actress didn't want to show them you say she showed them and it's on the cutting room floor the director would not specify who made the decision. He ultimately said, I made the decision. But yes, this scene is more tame than the way it was written. And yes, you may be right. Bosworth may have just said, I'm not doing that. You're talking about the scene where she's just jogging because there is another scene where she just stands there topless for him. I'm talking about both. I'm kind of combining all of those familiar beats where the men are basically leering at her. And David's response is like, well, of course they leer at you. Look at the way you're dressed. Yeah, they have the same conversation, which I think that in 1971, like, well, put a bra on. Like, that would have reflected maybe even the majority's opinion. Like, don't ask for it by going around without a bra. In 2011, I guess Twitter wasn't quite what it was, but, like, there would have been a tweet storm over this whole thing. Well, he even uses religious metaphor. He calls it reaping and sowing. Basically, you shouldn't expect a different reaction from those guys if you're going to wear that short and that shirt with no bra. Yeah, it feels like it wouldn't quite go that way in 2011. What I liked about this, though, was, I mean, again, it's like I said last time, no woman is asking for it. Nobody's asking to be robbed. But if you're walking around with a diamond on every finger, she's walking around with a diamond on every finger, and he's pointing that out. But what she says is, I dress like this for you. Did you buy that? No. I did. That felt like such a hollow line. That was... No, I believe her. I really do believe her. No. She dresses for him? Yes. No, she dresses that way because she wants to. Maybe she doesn't want the attention of the roofers, but I don't get the sense that she's trying to get him interested in her. Plus, she has a career. Unlike the woman last week, this woman needs to be calling her agent. She needs to be booking her next show. Why is she even down here? Well, they didn't talk about how the show recently ended, so they should address that. Hollywood's a hustle, man. You can't take a two-week break. You got to keep hustling. But I have talked to a number of women who, yes, they want to look good for their husbands. They want to dress up and look good because they keep the marriage spicy, keep him interested, whatever you have. She is an actress. She is paid for how she looks She knows her next gig is based on the fact that she's going to go out there in the heat and jog six miles. And that's what she's thinking about. I feel like she throws that back at him and it doesn't land correctly. There's no way that she's doing any of this for him. 
Well, I bought that line, and when he says, you don't need to, I know what you look like naked, I think that's really harsh. I think that's like a really shitty line for him to say. It is shitty. I mean, again, compared to the bickering we saw last week, not that shitty. What's a weird recalibration for me with the Amy character is, you know, we have that scene where in the original, she goes upstairs, her top's off, we hear David say, hey, make sure to draw those curtains, and she stands there for a second, and the roofers look at her and get a little peek, and it kind of moves on pretty quickly. Here, it's like a striptease. She's going to stand square in that window, so they could all see here, slowly remove that shirt. We see less. Again, not asking for it, but it feels like she's egging them on some more. Unlike last week, where I really felt like I understood why Amy was doing what she was doing, I have no idea why this Hollywood actress is wasting her time down here and trying to get something going with Charlie again. Yeah, because it seems like she has a pretty good relationship with David besides the little spat that they have right here. But yeah, yeah, why is it that that Southern hospitality? That's why she's so comfortable with Charlie. I don't feel like we ever get a real feel for the character. No, I don't understand her. And that is a big problem. It makes me realize and appreciate what Amy was last week. But David, yeah, we get him. He is always trying to be polite, but in a condescending manner. And he's just not clicking with this town. When he drives in to get signal, you know, they trick him into almost having a wreck again. He's getting a little bit miffed. I do love how, because of that, he has to go get a tire change. And even the mechanic is like, casually condescending like if you ever want to come by i'll give you a free lesson on how to change a tire yeah that is kind of where i turn against david because okay fixing a refrigerator sure that that, that takes some know-how you got to watch some youtube videos to figure that out and roofing a barn okay you got to know how to do that but a tire i learned how to do that when i was 12 everyone should know how to change a tire so question just trying to feel the room where are you at with david is he annoying you? Is he your hero? Is he like Hoffman? Is he worse? I don't like him as much as Hoffman just because Dustin Hoffman's a great actor and I've always thought that James Marsden is as bland as plain white toast. And that may be a good thing here because bland equals kind of despicable. But where I'm wondering is... Do you have your allegiance with him? Do you feel sorry for him now that these people are bullying him? Oh, I still am on his side the same way I was the other Davids, though. I mean, he is not doing anything to intentionally raise their ire. He's still buying them a round of drinks, trying to be nice. He's being polite about don't come in. I mean, he's a little bit more stupid Yeah, that is the word I was looking for. (laughs) Yeah, going out there in his robe and slippers and climbing the ladder to tell them. His Harvard shirt. That's what the real mistake was. He wore a Harvard shirt out in front of those guys. Yeah, so I feel like he's more dumb and thus, I mean, again, I'm not going to say he's asking for it, but it feels a little bit more like he's deserving of it. Yeah, don't ask me to compare Marsden to Hoffman. Please, don't. (laughs) That's a losing game. But I'm still on David's side. Yeah, and I don't... This one, because all the sides feel like 
caricatures, like cartoons to me. It's hard for me to really get into anyone, even though, yeah, David ends up being awful in that original. I just feel like those characters are more complex. At least David and Amy are. And so I'm more involved with their story here. I'm waiting for the home invasion thriller. Let's move it along. I just, I don't feel any of that character work is here. None of that commentary. I just don't feel this is an interesting film. So at least let's get to some bloodshed. About that. I do feel like while it is quicker paced, I feel like there is much less at stake. Yeah. And I'm feeling like, where are the scares? Where are the tension? If these people are more or less like each other and they're doing well off and whether they get their barn done or not, it doesn't really matter. Like, I'm just not feeling things are getting bad enough quickly. And that is, even though it's going by faster, it's not getting to where it needs to. That's the problem. It doesn't become interesting to me until Mars then goes to church. And this is a good scene. I actually feel like this is one of the better scenes. He's horrified by the fact that the minister is going to have them pray for a football victory, that the fighting Bengal tigers are going against the mud bugs, and the sermon's going to be all about that and then throw in some revelations. He walks out there and has a dialogue with Charlie that's sort of similar to the fight between science and religion of the last one. I thought it was a pretty good scene. I'm more on Charlie's side here than I was the pastor of the last one, blaming all scientists for the nukes. You know, I think that's pretty broad. You could also credit scientists with vaccines and penicillin and things like that. But I think Charlie has a point here that it was rude to get up and walk out. And, you know, if you're going to come here, you should show respect. It's the same thing David was asking them for, is if you're going to come to my house show me some respect, don't just wander in and take a beer, and now it's being thrown back at him. If you're going to come to our town and come to our church, show some respect. Yeah, and then come back on him, David's going to say, then thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. I thought that was pretty good, too. Now it felt like there was something going on. Like, I felt like cards were on table, Charlie and David are more or less announcing to each other, we don't like each other, and Amy's caught in the middle. It becomes increasingly so when Amy jumps into the middle of the fray and tries to protect the simpleton Jeremy from Tom. Jeremy is going to say that Tom's daughter is his girlfriend, and she's giving him every indication that she is, and drunk James Woods just don't have it. Look, Janice, I kind of got that character in the original. Like, she was someone that was young, trying to act more mature and go and do that whole kind of thing here. I don't know, you're a head cheerleader. This is the best you could do? Yeah, that is, I agree. Why would this head cheerleader, again, she seems to be in the mold of what Amy was. Yeah. She was the head cheerleader, and then she turned into a TV actress. Why would this girl be going after a mentally incapacitated middle-aged man? I think it's to piss off her father. I actually think it's less about him and getting sexual experience and attention and more about, yeah, I know that this is going to set off my dad. Yeah. That is the conclusion I came to. I just wish things were clearer in this. Again, just some characters instead of the caricatures. I agree. This one did not make a whole lot of sense to me because it may be to piss off her dad. And yes, women do date men to piss off their fathers, but it seems like she was legitimately into him too. By the end, (laughs) yes. The fact that she's not turning it into some Carrie-style prank where he's going to be humiliated. She really wants to do him in the locker room. I didn't see that coming. But, I mean, again, some women do that to get back at their dads. Yeah, it certainly worked. 
And yes, James Woods is wailing on this guy and Amy jumps in the middle and David's mad at her for that. He doesn't want to get involved. At this point, he wants to keep it to himself and the conflict is basically don't socialize with these rubes. It hurts that they don't have the Vietnam backdrop, right? I get that football is violent and they're trying to say that that's part of this culture here and maybe people are quick to temper and all of that. But I feel like we're missing that subtext from the last movie. Yeah, and that's what I was saying. Like, you're going to remake this. Okay, you got to find some kind of context to put it in. Football being popular in the South. uh, Okay, you're going to have to do a lot of legwork then (laughs) to make that work for me. I could maybe kind of see it, but that is the problem for me is it's trying to put it into... Again, this is stuff that applies to now in America. Like, there is kind of this Civil War vibe going on where people not getting along to violence breaking out in our Capitol buildings, and yet this doesn't feel like any of that real stuff we're experiencing. No, because they kill Flutie, and they should not have killed Flutie. Like, Flutie made sense the last time, but why, okay, like, I just had a fight over religion with this asshole from L.A., so my immediate thought is I'm going to run home real fast and strangle their cat in a noose. What? We do know that it is Charlie this time. He will apologize for it. Yeah, that does not make sense. He does not seem the type to kill the cat. And it wouldn't hurt David as much as it would hurt Amy. So what's he trying to accomplish? It just sets off her suspicions. And we see kind of playing out as it did last movie, her trying to guilt David into taking action. Instead of a man trap to set up, I think this is just a beer trap they're setting up in this one. It is, but why do that again? Like, I feel like that's definitely one you don't go to. Like, we weren't, aren't going to do beer traps. We aren't going to hang kittens. We've got to come up with different kind of shocks. Because the producer said, hey, straw dogs, kittens hanging and bear traps. Put it in the script. <laughs> I, I agree. Maybe Lurie didn't have the room to do it, but I feel like he could have made the case. We'll be crucified if we redo those elements. We have to come up equivalents. If he's saying a screenwriter knows binary, he's not working too hard to make changes. Yeah. <laughs> There's a balance. Maybe you do have to have the same basic characters, the same scenarios in a new setting, but you do not want to do the bear trap thing exactly as it was done before. You don't want to kill the cat this way. Going hunting, I guess that's fine. I mean, that is part of the culture. They set that up in the first scene. The fact that David would be tricked to go out and hunt a buck and, you know, lo and behold, does end up killing one. Yeah, but again, they try to make this more of a thriller. David almost gets shot, and then it just seems like it's regular hunters that mistook him or something. But like, again, this set up expectations for when I watched that original Straw Dogs, which never happened. It's just this moment of David sitting there on a rock looking foolish, waiting for geese to pop out of the bushes. Here, just make this a dumb thriller then. But it seems like they can't do that. I'm kind of going with this thing. It's about the same to me as the last one. I find it to be... Apples to apples. He kills the deer and feels bad about it, just like Dustin Hoffman killed the quail and feels bad about it. I'm not seeing these huge differences that you guys are seeing from last time. Yeah, you're right. It's apples to apple-flavored Jolly Ranchers, maybe? Like, one... I actually like apple-flavored Jolly Ranchers better than apples. I I knew (laughs) you were going to say that. The dried apples, let's put it that way, like with with no juice, no plumpness to them. I feel like you've taken everything interesting out. They've tried to put something here, but it's just not working, whether that's because the studio wouldn't let Laurie do what he wanted to do, or they just thought, hey, this is good enough for contemporary audiences. I just don't feel there's a richness to this one like there was the original. 
I think that the Southern versus Coastal works just as well as the U.S. versus U.K. I think that there is more strife between Coastal versus Southerners than there are between Americans versus the English. And I'm along for the ride with this one. Again, I think Skarsgård is a better Charlie and comes across as more sympathetic at times than whoever was the actor last time. Yeah, I will agree with you on that one because I watched this one first. I'm like, okay, Charlie is going to be a big character in the original. And I kept forgetting who Charlie was <laughs> in that one. He never really stuck out to me except when they needed him to in certain scenes. But Charlie feels like much more of a character in this remake. Or maybe he's just an actor that we've seen before, so we pay attention to him. I mean, I think that's the effect that I have. I don't know that Skarsgård is totally right for this. I guess he's okay. I guess all of them are okay. Yeah, it's okay. (laughs) My struggle is that none of them are really nailing it. Part of why you couldn't do the slow boil building of tension that I like so much, and you have to cut through quicker and make it simpler and just connect the dots, is we're not getting the performances. We're not getting that tension. It's just not interesting to watch these people play off each other. It's all feeling very TV movie. I'm finding this crew more interesting than the Droogs in the last film. And why do you think that is? I think that they feel more like real people than the crew last time, the first two people working on the house, one of them, the rat catcher, who was a complete cartoon character, and the other, the ex-con, and stealing the panties here. These feel more like real people I've met, and they seem just more interesting in that regard of having a little bit of depth in the sub-characters, Charlie's henchmen, than we had last time. But doesn't it hurt the tension that it just kind of feels like what I would call like a romantic comedy or something about which guy is the girl going to end up with? You don't watch rom-coms if you think this feels like a romantic comedy. Well, no, I mean, I don't watch a lot of them, but I have seen some, and I do feel like these feel like the kinds of people that are in those movies, and this level of tension is low. We are not getting the anger and the resentment and the seething that would make you believe we're about to boil over and watch a siege at this farm. I mean, it doesn't boil over into a siege initially. We still have the uncomfortable rape scene. And I still think Amy starts by saying no, but then kind of acquiesces and then kind of regrets it. What? No. No, this feels very different. First of all, this Amy won't even let Charlie in. She's trying to stop him from coming in. In the original, she just lets him in. He just walks in and does his thing. This one, it feels like she's putting up a fight the whole time. No, clearly, when Charlie's on top of Susan George in the original, there's a moment where she's pushing against, and then the sounds of conflict become coitus moans. And she's finally like, hold me, and all of that. This Amy won't look at him at no point will acknowledge that what's happening to her, she's receptive to. Doesn't she reciprocate a couple of kisses in there? I thought I saw. No, not in this one. You must be blurring the two movies. This one is a hard line, like a giant black line in that no means no. And again, that was Laurie's point. He wanted to make it explicit that we would all understand she takes no pleasure in this moment. I guess... The different amount of fight she puts up for Charlie versus Norman is what makes me think there's a different level of acquiescence there. I mean, with Charlie, she eventually stops fighting. With Norman, there's shrieks and everything. 
But that shouldn't be your barometer about rape. Yeah, she never looks like she's into it the way in the original it does. Because she doesn't fight doesn't mean that she is permitting it. She is clearly closed down. Look at her eyes. Look at her body language. At no point does she hold him, encourage him, say anything to say, I'm glad this is happening. And when he's done, he's kind of looking at her like, we're good, right? He's stunned that she is not giving him eye contact. And then, yeah, it gets worse for her because then all of a sudden the Zydeco comes on. That's a bad sign already. Bad sex. And then, yeah, it becomes a full-on assault. I just always think rape should be depicted as a full-on assault. But that's not what it always is. Yeah. And in fact, looking at the numbers, most sexual assaults are women knew their partner, knew the person that did it, said no, but it happened anyway. The Charlie is much more common than the stranger that creeps into your house. Yeah, but she knew... Norman also. Mm, Barely. Only because he was on the same football team. And that's one thing I'm missing here, too, is we're to understand that all of these guys normally do what Charlie wants them to do. This is a guy that's finally saying, I'm going to do something I want. He's breaking ranks with the quarterback. And I feel like maybe flashbacks wouldn't work, but I needed to see more of this team dynamic to understand what was going on between Charlie and Norman. Norman has not been a big enough character for me to process what's happening now. And Charlie doesn't hold her down for this the way he did in the last film, but he does sit back and just watches the show, which I found creepy. Yeah, it almost feels worse. It's out of character. Again, this is the take charge quarterback, and like suddenly, again, shock can do this to people. He seems incapacitated, stunned that this is happening. I mean, post-ejaculation, you get tired. Doesn't have all his energy. But I really would have thought that, again, in both movies, I get the sense that Charlie is not about sharing, and Charlie is about being with Amy, whereas Norman is about getting back at David. I want to hurt David, and this is the way I'm going to do it. See, and I thought Norman was about, I covet Amy, I'm jealous of David, I want what he has, and I will take it. It's kind of the same thing. We're saying the same thing. No, 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 no. You're saying he raped her to hurt David. I'm saying he raped her because he wanted her. Yeah, but it also hurt David. It's a package. Mm, No, I want what David has. I don't think David's a factor in his mind when he rapes Amy. I don't think he's just a rapist that goes around raping anyone. They've all been coveting the house. They've even talked about what's inside and what they would want and all of that. He has looked under the hood of that car. They definitely want his things. I would say Norman is treating his wife like a thing. Yeah, but I think he would have wanted her even without David there. Would he have raped her? He would not have assaulted her if he had not felt dismissed by David. You think? Yes. Agreed, yeah, I agree. I don't know. I mean, who knows? Again, it's so thinly drawn, this character, that, again, I can't understand the dynamics the same. I can't read this movie the way that the other one was because it hasn't been calibrated with the same precision. I do like the fact that David has tried to hitchhike and the sheriff has stopped him and is like ticketing him for poaching. Like, do you have a license for that gun? And could you please put the safety on? Well, I get it, the poaching thing. But the fact that the sheriff's like, we had three calls about someone walking around with a gun. It's the South. When I lived in Texas, people would have an AR-15 strapped to them going into Target. No one (laughs) called the cops. Yeah. No, but again, I, I think the more to the point is like, yeah, David is... Yes, really keeps having to pay. 
And again, the idea that he's going to have to pay these guys off and fire them, he's going to give away most of the FEMA money. It was a throwaway line at the beginning that they got $8,000 because a hurricane hit that barn, and he's going to pay off 5000 of that. This is a win for those men. Oh, you're firing me? Okay, $5,000 walking away fee, no problem. I'm happy to be fired like this any day of the week. Let's go to the bar. Yeah, I would only have done that if they were giving me the materials they said they bought. (laughs) Oh, you bought the materials? Bring them here and I'll reimburse you. But David's happy just to get them out of his life. If only it were that easy. But yes, it's a small town. And Amy is insistent that if David is not going to leave, he's now saying, this is my home. I'm not going to be chased out. Well, if you live here in Blackwater, you're going to have to go to Friday Night Football. And of course, they're going to be there. I do like that this movie has replaced religion with football. I feel like the South has done that in many ways as well. It's the best thing about this version, and I agree it's good enough that you wish they had done more with it. Yeah, I wish this was more about football culture in the South, and I guess if you could figure out how to get a home invasion film in there too, fine. But yeah, all the interesting stuff is not what I found interesting in the original Straw Dogs. Right. It's interesting to think about these guys that are past their prime and yeah, what they're capable of doing because they've all that violence that served them so well in their youth now is just energy that needs to be expended and they hurt each other. And yeah, again, this is rich. This could have worked. But by following the original blueprint so closely, maybe Laurie's original draft did it better. I feel like they're hampered by having to do straw dogs rather than making their point. I do think that her flashbacks worked better in church than they do at a football game. I'll say that. It's the same kind of clash editing of her remembering her assault. But when they're all sitting in church and she's in a quiet room with them, it feels more believable than at a raucous football game where they're somewhere in the crowd. Right. And certainly we've already talked about the whole Janice and Jeremy thing. You didn't seem to like it in the last movie. And here it just doesn't need to be. It just does not need to be in this movie. But there has to be some spark to light the fire at the end fight. And so they're going with the same thing. Yeah, something else would have been preferable. But yes, they have been forced to, chosen to, honoring the original, slavishly devoted to the original. However you want to characterize it, I think it's unfortunate that it just doesn't get the same irony out of it. Watching David stand up for Jeremy this time doesn't mean the same thing. Yeah, what was telling to me, because I watched this one first, I'm like, no way this stuff is in that original, because I did not remember this subplot at all from that original one. So I'm like, oh boy, none of this works. There's no way they did this in the original. And then I watched the original, I'm like, oh, they did it, and it actually pretty much works. So it was very telling. Like, to this one, I was totally put off of and thought there's no way it would have ever been done before, but it was, and it was done better here. You're talking about the mice and men, accidental strangulation... Yeah, all of that. Like, I don't understand why a head cheerleader is going with this guy. Mm-mm. The strangulation, the fact that they're going to hit him when he's just walking down the road, and this is what the final conflict is over. And then not take him to the hospital. Like, we're going to take him to our house. What? Because the hospital is like two hours away, so we'll take him to our house and wait for an ambulance? That makes no sense. No, you are in a fast car. Drive him to 200 miles to the hospital. 
I think they say 20 minutes even at that. I don't think it's 200 miles, but... But where does he think the ambulance is going to come from and the doctors? They're coming from the hospital. Yeah, no, it's... Again, all of this contrivance to keep the dynamic the same makes this look foolish. And it really undermines what was the pinnacle of the, the original now becomes the worst part of this remake. This whole siege is stupid. I find it almost identical to the last one. It is neither as exciting as I want... But with none of the meaning, none of the depth. Only in pantomime. You cannot mean it has the same suspense. I don't know that the first one had all that much suspense when it got there. And here, I feel it's about the same. I feel like when they're standing outside and he's inside, it does feel suspenseful. I do think James Woods is a bit more broad than the other Tom, but I believe James Woods to be a dangerous man. Come on, you can't say in the original there wasn't just things that took your breath away. Is Amy going to go with Charlie? What's happening here? I never thought Amy was going with Charlie. Not once. I think that's an important reading with that original one. Like, she is willing to change allegiances during that final fight. Right. Is Henry going to do something to Amy while they're there? All of that stuff was like powder kegs going off. Yeah, Jeremy just sits in a chair the whole time, I think, in this one. Like, he never attacks Amy. He doesn't do anything interesting. It's just very confusing. Like, when they kill the sheriff, it just feels unmotivated. The word again and again is like, I don't feel like they've reached the point that they would be behaving like this. If you're claiming these are more realistic people and not caricatures, why are they behaving this way? Drunkenness and racism and anger about his daughter? I have seen... Far worse crimes committed in the name of alcohol. He doesn't know about the crime yet, though. He knows his daughter's missing. Okay, but he doesn't know it's because of Jeremy. And if your daughter's missing, they said this in the first one. Go look for your daughter. And don't you want to see the relationship between Coach and the team when it made sense? Like, I don't know if it's flashback is the right thing, but like, we're supposed to believe this team will do anything James would ask. And I just, I don't buy it. I totally get what you're saying. There was a comic book series called Southern Bastards, which took place in the South, and it was about an old football coach who still controls the town, and he still controls those old football players, and you get into all those dynamics, and you would expect that all here. Like, I don't expect them to get in the huddle and say we're going to do, you know, whatever kind of play, but, you know, some kind of power structure between coach and quarterback and all that kind of stuff. Again, I'm not opposed to exploring it this way. I'm saying there's some good stuff potentially here, but they don't want to do any of that. At least the producer didn't. You know, I'm okay with following your coach without seeing it back then because, I mean, I've seen Varsity Blues. I know what it all looks like, you know? I've seen all the right moves. But Stuart hasn't seen it. (laughs) And you can't do that. Oh, because I know of these other things, we'll just graph that onto this. No, your job is to earn these relationships. The first movie did. Not necessarily. Sometimes you got to take shorthand. No, no, no. no. You can take shorthand and then you wind up with this. And that's the problem. If you're trying to put America in a microcosm, you got to make every character super count, not do broad generalizations. You got to say, that's what this group is about. And that's what that group's about. Like, I feel this doesn't really have anything to say about that. Yeah. Urban versus rural. They don't get along, don't they? But like, we're never given real reasons why. You called them caricatures, 
But the rat guy was scary when he laughed. Like, there was a menace to him. I was afraid of him coming through that window. He was throwing rats through windows. That's crazy. Bic and this other guy from Entourage and all. Like, I'm not afraid of them. Who are they? I haven't even noticed them. I didn't notice anybody except for the rat guy last time, so... You knew the rapist? I didn't know the rapist until he was a rapist. But he was a rapist before the siege, so you would be able to differentiate the drunken father, the two rapists, the rat guy. Maybe you don't remember the driver of the truck, but they were more distinct than this crew. I'm not buying that this is just as good as that. If you think that's true, not recommend for both. I feel like this end siege is lackluster, and I felt like the last end siege was lackluster. Yeah. Why did you recommend last week then? Like, this is every, everything is hinging on the emotional catharsis of seeing cowards become killers. And that was powerful last week. Was it? Yes. Yes. I believe the last movie was psychologically powerful, scarring, hurting your brain to watch people compromised in that way. And this is like a CW TV movie version of that. There is nothing creepy or psychologically disturbing about any of this. There is no gut punch to watching Marsden see the barn burn like there is with Dustin Hoffman saying, yeah, I don't know how to get home either. Playing Zydeco, like all of that. No, none of this is landing in the same way at all. If you think it's landing in the same way at all, you're saying that neither one is very good. The sieges at the end, I don't think either is great. I do like when he plays Zydeco at the end. How could you recommend Straw Dogs and not recommend the siege? Everything is about the home invasion. It's all building to that. What was good about it if not the siege? Again, I the relationship between Dustin Hoffman and the townies and the fish out of water drama. And yeah, the siege is the culmination, but you can't call it a great action sequence. Like you said, that's not what Peck and Paul even wanted to do. It was a great action sequence. Why can't I call it that? It was cathartic. It was amazing to watch it go off and to see the ironies explode. It wasn't just the hitting and the punching and the shooting. It was the ironic way that people turned into the very thing that they hated. They suddenly were compromised. Yeah, there was tragedy involved with that. Yeah, every kill is a tragedy in that original. Exactly how do the brutes become the thing they hate in there? I never saw them break out a book to try to get at David. I don't see the brutes changed at all in that movie. I mean, they killed the law enforcement. That was an accident. Charlie wanted Amy to love her. And did everything, again, If from Charlie's point of view, he didn't rape her. He tried to win her back. So, yes, all those people were misguided. And here, Charlie also thought he was winning her back during the sex scene. It wasn't until after that he realized. Yeah, but there's nothing that Amy did to say that she was into it. I don't know why it matters who dies in this version. I really don't. Again, David went from pacifist avoiding conflict to standing up for the house. Why was he avoiding conflict? Again, they didn't establish him as someone that was running from violence. So this doesn't feel like an incredible right turn. Because Stuart 
This is Stalingrad. This is about survival. Yeah. That's all it's about. That's what I'm saying. This is about survival. It's about the kills. It's about the adrenaline. When I see Hoffman kill someone in the first Straw Dogs, the original Straw Dogs, like that's a tragedy. That every uh, The loss of control of humanity at the end of that film is a tragedy. This is a, a thriller. And so, okay, let's see some kills and get to the end. One thing I think they do want you to see is that this time Amy is going to get the rifle and has no problems killing the man that came to rape her. They want to give her that kill and I do think that if not a cheer moment that is something that they are giving the audience to say heroic moment she deserved it that is an upgrade from the last film in that I feel like if the rapist will be killed she deserved to pull that trigger you know no one deserved a kill last time you're not to root for a single death that happened it is saying that those instincts are based and animalistic and when you play into that you are becoming savage like them it is pitting your own desire for murder against you now you're saying it's cool when the right people when the good people kill the bad guys this is the dumb version i now realize even more we saw different movies last week and i'm very confused as to why you think that this is the same if nothing else in intent it's very different it seems pretty similar that eventually the Hollywood guy needs to stand up and protect his property. I do believe in both movies, the answer is not in either extreme, but a combination thereof. You see a downfall of Dustin Hoffman, I see a compromise. It wasn't even his property. That was part of the irony. It was like the Vietnam War. We shouldn't have been there. Yeah. We were fighting on our principles when we didn't even belong there. It wasn't our home. And fighting for that property doesn't redeem the the abuse his wife went through. It doesn't change anything. It's a house. He's not saving any people. He's not bringing justice with Jeremy. He's protecting a killer. He's saving Jeremy. Yes. That was an irony. You've got to admit that that irony was richer last time than this Jeremy. This Jeremy doesn't even... No, in my notes for this one, because I watched this one first, I'm like, why do they have this Jeremy subplot? Get rid of it. Doesn't need to be here. Yeah, it should not be in this movie. It doesn't even need to be in this movie. It could have just been that they came there for a different reason. I think they came with murder in their eyes, and that's what pushed both Davids to not give in this time, is because it became life or death stakes. I'll agree, though. I don't like James Marsden watching the house burn down as much as I like David driving into town saying he doesn't know where home is. And I do wonder, you know, I still think things aren't great between David and Amy at the end of this one. Really? What's to get over? They were still fighting during the siege. And when it's all said and done, he's still yelling at her to do what he says. And when he's standing out there watching the barn burn, he's standing alone. I feel like that's telling me that there is distance in this marriage that wasn't there when they came down she with no hesitation picked up that shotgun and killed her rapist that was going to kill her husband killed her rapist yes who would hesitate at that amy in the first film did yes i feel like this couple is going to be just fine they're going to get the hollywood ending or maybe not but is it a tragedy if they don't end up together i mean again they're just not interesting to watch Well, then let's not prolong the inevitable. Jacob Stewart, why don't you recommend this version of Straw Dogs? Jacob. I mean, there is so much that is similar, and yet this one feels more hollow, which would have been okay if it was more of just a traditional thriller, and they would have just got to the action quicker and make it the awful thing that we all expect Hollywood to make a remake of Straw Dogs into instead of this, which is 
even more confounding to me. Like, we're going to take the exact same script, but throw it in the South. We're going to say the same words, but it's 2011. There's none of that context of war or, or politics or anything. Well, we'll have some stuff about Southern life, but we're not going to really delve deep enough into it. This they should have just gone trashier and just more Hollywood with it. Just make it a thriller and don't try to get into all that complexity. Cause I don't think they even tried or maybe Laurie did. And the producer said, no, you're not allowed. It's got to be exactly what we did before, but without any of the context. So I lose all the richness of character. I lose all the richness in the themes, all that rich irony at the end that like, again, I'm not laughing cause it's funny, but it is, it turns into almost a dark comedy with Dustin Hoffman running around at the end, shooting everyone up. And it feels like a tragedy, a total loss of humanity here okay we're a standard thriller let's kill the bad guys and go on it just loses all that juice that was in that original one so yeah this is more hollow but it's not hollow enough where it's gonna at least give you those base thrills which is the problem it's something stuck in between so it's a not recommend Stuart. I will say this much, Arnie. It came close on some level in the beginning. For the first half of this movie, I was like, well, they're trying to do it on their own terms. They're trying to get there while commenting on other things. And yes, they're trying to fix some misogyny or perceived misogyny. They're trying to fix the idea that environment made these people who they are and they're not just savages because they're human They tried to find a straw dogs that would play in 2011. And for about half of this, I could go with it. But truly, once we started to get into the Jeremy kills the cheerleader thing, you could feel the wheels coming off. And the more that they tried to hew to peck and paw, the further they got away from whatever point they were trying to make. And so, no, I can't recommend this, but I don't hate it. It's more like it needed to either be scarier I definitely think that it should have just been more extreme, more of a Lionsgate movie, or you needed better acting, you know? You needed something that compared to the performances we saw last week. Maybe then it could have been Rob Zombie's Halloween. I don't think this was ever going to be better, but it could have been interesting. It could have been what I asked for. It could have been a tweak and a twist on something that I love. And instead, it was sort of a half-baked idea that worked until it didn't, And by the end of it, again, the fact that you've thought that this climax was identical in thrills, I can't even begin to contemplate that. Like, night and day, this movie is without suspense, without psychological scarring. You can watch it with anyone and not feel disturbed in the same way. It is a very forgettable not recommend. And I came in with the absolute lowest of expectations here. I've have seen a lot of remakes from the 2000s that are abysmal. Again, The Fog might be better if Uva Bull had directed it. So, coming into this, I didn't remember what I thought of it from 10 years ago. Forgettable is the word, but I watched it that time because I didn't remember so much what I thought of the first Straw Dogs. Watching them both pretty much back-to-back for these reviews... Yeah, I think each have their pluses, each have their minuses. This one has a much more palpable audio mix. I was not annoyed by listening to scratchy cassette recording audio. Criterion usually does better on that stuff. So I guess that's the best audio they had for the original version. This one, hey, it's modern, so it sounds good. I think Peckinpah did more with the scenery of his area here at one point the director's going to turn the camera on its side for a car going past it's just not 
visually exciting, but it all comes down to the story, which I feel is about the same story. The fish out of water getting into conflict with, you know, nerd versus jock kind of fight is in both cases here. And I feel like you get about the same experience in both and neither is a must-see, but both are fine enough. I've said it enough times in this show. I don't need to belabor the point. It's a weak recommend, same as the last one. So there's no way to split that photo finish. You're not going to say one is slightly better than the other. No. Okay. Yeah, both eke it over to recommend barely. I'm surprised you liked either. And happy. I'm glad you found entertainment here. But okay. I cannot agree that it's the same experience in either package. They're very different experiences, even though they follow the same basic plot points. In my mind, one will shock you and one will lull you to sleep. Well, this Friday, we continue breaking into homes with the sequel to The Strangers. The Strangers pray at night we get religious no pray with an e oh wrong pray <laughs> hunting prey at night that's usually when i would expect the strangers to be out killing people but you know yeah that's what they did in the first one <laughs> i think it would be a little bit different pray midday you know mm-hmm. <laughs> afternoon snack i mean we should have a whole franchise by this point but the second movie took 10 years to make so i know we'll discuss all about why that is why it took so long, why this isn't a bigger franchise, this Friday. And this is the second film in our silver level of our fall-winter donation series. Got a lot of films coming up after this one. We continue on silver. Coming up, you're next. Don't Breathe, Don't Breathe 2. In the gold level, all the paranormal activity films. In the platinum level... Bird Box and the two A Quiet Place films. You can really help support our show and get all of these bonus reviews. Details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your support, Jacob Stewart. Thank you for joining me. And until next time, come on, Henry, we're going home. Okay, you've had your fun. I'll give you one more chance. And if you don't clear out now, there'll be real trouble. I mean it. Thank you for listening to this Now Playing Podcast movie review. It's been a good day. We've got a lot accomplished. We hope you enjoyed the show. Yeah, that was real good. Real good. Thank you. Help us spread the word about this show by leaving a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. That would be a terrific help. Want more reviews like this one? In the archive section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts. Come on, catch up! On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises, including Star Wars, Batman, James Bond, Middle Earth, Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You ever do horror films like that movie Saw or action films? And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. You've had your fun. Pay the man and leave. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. Oh, we can take care of our own here. Usually do. You can donate directly by tapping the support button at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Yes? How much? Oh, reasonable. 
And you can join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. There was once a time, Mrs. Sumner, when you were ready to beg me for it. Need more Now Playing? Subscribe to our InFocus weekly newsletter for exclusive digital download giveaways, celebrity interviews, behind-the-scenes insights, and more. Sign up through the subscribe page on our website and get it delivered to your inbox every Friday. You want to stay here. This is what we do on Friday nights. You can also compare notes with us on Letterboxd. Go to letterboxd.com forward slash now playing to see what our hosts are watching when they're not recording podcasts. And follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. Where are you going? David? Where are you going? Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Some of a bitch got some man in him after all. Associate produced by Jason Latham. He's a good man. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. Come on, lads, work to be done. Now Playing Credits, read by Brock. Run away with words. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Venganza Media Incorporated. Just a little redneck wisdom for you. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. We're all in it now. Accessories we are. That's the law. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2021, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. I don't know my way home. That's okay. I don't either. over-exaggerated elements that sort of marred the original in his estimation. That's weird because this is... Thing? Whoa, what was that? Um, I'm working on it. Oh, Dang. that's Arnie. We'll let, you, we'll let you interrupt then. Hold on. We'll just stop. Can you hear me now? Yeah, we, yeah. we've been able we to hear you for a could. while. Can you hear us? I can at the moment. Okay, that's okay. good. I want to give it a second to see if these headphones cut out again. What happened? Did everything just die? Or I think two things happened. The headphones died, and I think when I got up to find a cord for the headphones, I accidentally unplugged the mixing board and didn't realize mm. it. Yeah. And so I'm trying to fix the headphone issue because I couldn't hear you. Mm. I had no idea you guys couldn't hear me. Nope. <laughs> Every once in a while, we could hear like a sigh or something. It was it was picking yeah, it up was stuff that usually doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably because it was 
using the onboard mic. <laughs> yeah, we're like, was he taken by a poltergeist? And he's trying to speak to us from the other side. It was very weird. <laughs> yeah, it did. It did have that like reversed sound quality. Like we're playing the record backwards. Help me, mommy. All right, I think we're okay. The last thing I heard was Stuart saying he wanted to fix the misogyny yes. of the first film. And other and other things, yes. Yeah, and then all of a sudden you made a. I started to talk, and then you made a noise, so we stopped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 